2: From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com.
1: Moonpig.com.
2: Today's episode has been sponsored
3: by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. New customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. com and definitely check out those shows as well. I hope you'll all check out the all new Zibby Mag, Z-I-B-B-Y-M-A-G, the literary lifestyle destination with essays, book news, a lit lifestyle feature, and even some classes. Check it out, zibbymag.com. Tom Perota is the author of the novel Tracy Flick Can't Win, plus nine other best selling works of fiction, including Election and Little Children, both of which were made into critically acclaimed movies, one with Reese Witherspoon, and The Leftovers and Mrs. Fletcher, which were both adapted into HBO series. Oh, I watched Mrs. Fletcher too. He lives outside Boston. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Tracy Flick Can't Win.
4: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
3: This is the best cover because this is how I feel every single day, pretty much. This hunched over my desk, glasses on the side. This could be, you could be actually just taking a picture of where I am right now at the end of the day. So anyway. Okay. Tracy Flick Can't Win. Tell me, why did we go back to these characters? What happened? Tell me the whole story and tell listeners what, what this book is about.
4: OK, well, Tracy Flick, if anyone knows the book or the film Election, was a very ambitious high school student who was running for president of her school. And her teacher was so resentful and annoyed by her that he actually tried to steal the election from her. And so that was a story that was kind of a political allegory that I wrote uh, twenty five years ago or so, and it was turned into a wonderful movie by Alexander Payne. It starred Reese Witherspoon, and as a result, I think, of Reese's completely magnetic performance, Tracy Flick became a kind of cultural archetype. She embodied this idea of the unpleasantly ambitious young woman who is going to do whatever it takes to to get to the top, which, by the way, is something that we admire in men, but I think found a little bit threatening in a young woman. And I had the weird experience as a writer of just watching this character turn into a kind of um, stereotype or a shorthand for this female ambition. And what was interesting was then it also, at a certain point, Tracy was seen as a villain early on. And then I think recently feminists sort of took a second look and said, wait a second, why is Tracy a villain? All she is is a a teenage girl who is trying to get elected president of her high school, get a scholarship so she can go to college because she's been raised by a single mom. She really she needs it. And, you know, yeah, she does a couple of dumb teenage things. She rips some posters for her opponent. And then lies about it. But that's it. She's no villain. She's a teenage a teenager. So that was part of it, was just me watching this character become part of a, a larger cultural discussion about women and ambition. And then there was a second, more specific thing for me, which was that in the original book, Election, and in the film, Tracy has a, a sexual relationship with a teacher when she's in high school. And at the time, in, in Election, the novel, she's very defiant about it. She says, I I wanted it. I We had this relationship. I realized it was not for me, and I stopped it. And so she tells a story of her own agency. She was up for this relationship, and then she realized it was a mistake, and then she broke up with the teacher, and he was the one who acted immature, and he got caught, and he got fired. End of story. She's just going to continue on with her teenage life. She's going to get elected president. She's going to get that scholarship. And you know, when the Me Too moment happened, I thought, as a writer, I wondered if I had told the story in in the right way. Just because I, I noticed when I was reading Me Too stories, so many women talking about relationships just like this Mm -hmm. and saying well at the time it seemed like something I wanted but now that I look back I understand that it's wrong and in, in this new book Tracy Flick can't win Tracy is an assistant principal at a high school she's still there as a high school principal she knows it's wrong for a teacher to do this and so she's having to confront this experience that she has crafted a narrative about and now she's That narrative is starting to feel shaky, she says. And this whole book is about Tracy in middle age, taking inventory of her life and wondering why she hasn't lived up to her very powerful ambitions for herself and thinking about the way that the deck seems to be stacked against her. She's hitting a glass ceiling in her life and she's wondering, is it me or is it the world?
3: I feel like I know many people hitting that exact same thing. I feel like they're little, they'll be like... (laughs) prints of people's, you know, head like hair stuff on all those glass ceilings, you know, from so many people popping up against the same place. Never mind, weird visual, but <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Like I do, the I do. It's a common place to bump up against at this time in our lives.
4: Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we saw it in our political system, you know, Hillary Clinton seemed like she had everything that it would take to get elected. She had experience. She had the brain. She was a hard worker. She had paid her dues. She'd been a senator. And she did not win against a man who was, you know, lazy and inexperienced and unprepared. you know, worse than that. and And the question was, you know, was she a bad candidate? Did people not like her? And that was seemed to be part of this question of, you know, because because that was also something about Tracy. She seemed, very hard-edged and a little bit unfeminine, and the teacher resented her. And, and I think there was some question, again, of like, okay, was it just Hillary or is it any female candidate who can't win? And, and so, yes, that glass ceiling affects, you know, women at all phases of their their career I think it also is as you say a middle-aged thing so even as a a middle-aged man there is that melancholy of just I had this big dream and you know now I have a a life that's somewhat smaller than than that dream and and what do I make of that how do I account for it how do I find peace within myself
3: well I feel like if you the more resigned you are to something like that, the less, it just sets your, like it it negates the the potential of the rest of your life, right? Just because middle age comes. I feel so many people think, okay, well, this is what happened. I'm going to, I guess this is where I ended up, but there are decades left to live.
4: Yeah, I I totally do. And I think that's where we find Tracy in this book. Uh, At the beginning, she is in that state of like, uh, you know, my life is what it is. And then what happens is the the principal job opens up at her school and you know, she's like, you know Rocky coming back for one more <laughs> one more fight. you know it's like she is who she is because she is really resilient and tough, but but also her ambition, that flame of her ambition has never been fully extinguished. And I think th- this um, novel is about, somebody kind of coming out of a, a funk and sensing that that there's another chapter to be told, as, as you just suggested.
3: If not now, when?
4: <laughs> That's right.
3: <laughs> Tell me about structuring this in a way with Vito Falcone's making amends for all of his past sins and how you have introducing all these characters by when he meets them to apologize.
4: Yeah, so so this book, did not start out as a book about Tracy Flick. Let me say that. It started out, I was writing about this high school hall of fame. And I didn't know Tracy was part of this high school, but the idea was that that this high school invites a former football player back to town to induct him into the hall of fame and honor his, his teenage greatness. And this guy is also in his 40s, like Tracy. His name is Vito Falcone. He's a former NFL football player. And but, only, he's, but
3: only for like three years,
4: right? Only, yeah, he had a very, <laughs> very undistinguished career. <laughs> but sadly, he's also, he is now a recovering alcoholic and he is suffering from what he suspects might be some brain damage from uh, concussions that he suffered on the field. And uh, what, what I imagined was, this story about a middle-aged man who comes back to his hometown to be honored, but really there's all these people in the town who have unfinished business with him, who resent him for the bad way that he treated them back when he was young and was this golden boy. Because it seemed to me like that's really like a great image of, of American masculinity right now. Like, you know, we had our golden years and now the culture going, hey, wait a second, we got some things to talk about and, but, and, and I, you know, so Vito is somebody who's treated a lot of people badly in his life, like a a lot of men who have power. Right. And, And but he also, and even like the, the,
3: Boy, he left on the side of the road. That was like heartbreaking as a coach. Oh my gosh!
4: I know it's a very so we catch him in that stage of making amends in uh, in reco- in a twelve step recovery program, and and we just find out all the things that Vito has done to people. And so yes, you you mentioned there's a, a boy that he a football player on his team who's young, and he uh, refused to let him ride home on the bus because he had made a mistake on, on the field. And you know it, it can seem awful now. But coaches got away with murder when I was when I was a kid. You know that was a place. It was almost like a quasi-military place, and there was a kind of cruelty. It still happens, right? You still hear these stories about hazing, and and we, you know, there's just bad stuff happens in locker rooms, but not like it, it used to be. Just considered like. Yeah, that happens. That's part of being a man, part of being an athlete. And, and I think, you know, the culture just is less tolerant of it now, which is great. And I think Vito is having to look back and and literally say, I'm sorry to all these people who I mean, It's almost funny. He, he treated people so badly. There's almost some humor in that. I, uh, it, it's not funny if you're on the wrong end of it. It's funny to to find out that he was so awful.
3: Well, he's also like shooting himself in the foot over again when he's apologizing. He's like apologizing for things that people didn't even know about. You know, like, and also my mom is still alive or my dad is still alive. But it
4: was- <laughs> yes, it's
3: like, what get you know, I'm getting off the boat. It's like, this guy, like, you just want to be like, no, stop. Like, <laughs> well,
4: it's a Pandora's box for some yeah. people. <laughs>
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you play sports? Did you play football growing up?
3: I,
4: I did, yeah. So that but I'm I'm not very big. So my football career ended sophomore year when I realized that I was uh, not gonna be. I was I played quarterback and was captain of my freshman team, but then sophomore year, everybody grew and I stayed the same and I couldn't I couldn't see and, you know, I would try to tackle people. I'd hit them as hard as I could and, and I'd end up just, you know, on the ground. I, I think I, I, you know, I realized that I was physically not up to it. And it was it was kind of a, you know, a real moment of tribulation for me because it's what I had dreamed about. And then my consolation was to sort of migrate into the artsy side of high school. I I, you know, tried to play guitar, but wasn't that good. But then I started to really get into reading. And, and when I started to write, I felt what I knew I didn't have with music, because I play with other musicians and they would be like, oh, it just goes like this. And they would do it. And it seemed like there was no obstacle between like what they were hearing and what they could play. Whereas for me, it was just all obstacle. But then when I wrote, I had that feeling of like, oh, I know how to do this. I stopped here and I jumped to there and, and you know this would be the way to end it, you know, just those things that seemed so mysterious to me in music, like I just couldn't follow it. When I wrote, I felt like, oh, I think I'm good at this. And that's a very powerful feeling when you're a young person, I think, to sense like, oh, okay, uh, I'm good. And, And then, you know, then becomes, then comes the real journey as a writer, which is you find out that talent is such a small part of it and that you need so many other things you need to read widely and deeply. You need to fail (laughs) and be rejected and toughen up and and find a voice that is particularly yours. But I I do think it it was, you know, it gave me the fuel to start that journey, this feeling that I I could be good at this.
3: Basically, if you were 6'2", we would not be talking about this book.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I would be apologizing to you. Like Vito.
3: That's really funny. My husband, by the way, was the same thing. Quarterback didn't grow enough and had to stop. And he actually went into tennis and then ended up like doing that professionally. But, um, oh, wow.
4: Well, that's yeah. a, that's a different kind of happy ending. Yeah.
3: Different, different, but, you know, but I guess with writing, you know, you could do it forever. You know, your, your knees are fine. <laughs> you can do it as long as you want. And it's a, a better, a uh, better place to arrive at, honestly. So,
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wish I were a better tennis player though. <laughs> but yes, you're, you're right. It is, it is a really interesting thing because writing can be a lifelong journey. And, and, you know, I, I guess the question is, I, I just was reading this book by Jeff Dyer called the La- final days of Roger Federer. And it's just yeah. talking about, you know, that, that moment in everyone's life when, you know, you're trying to stave off the end. Mm-hmm. And, and he's sort of talking about that, like every book he thinks is going to be his last book and that's what sort of motivates him to get through it. But then he has to immediately start another one so that he can have another last book yeah. that he's working on. Yes. But I do, you know, there are writers like Philip Roth and Alice Munro who are able to write, you know, you know, well past well into their seventies, you know, and that, that is a, you know, as they get older, that's a, an inspiring vision.
3: I do think, though, that the aging athlete is something that the community at large, almost like veterans, like has sort of dropped the ball on, so to speak. Right? You go, we we put so much emphasis on on athletics, and you know, I have four kids, I have two boys, and it's like from the you know, it's like always boom boom boom. Like, what are they going to do? What's the next? And then and and then people with talent like what happens then? Like when your life goes a different way, what are you equipped to do? What do you, how do you come off of that? And how, and all that attention and, you know, even with the arts, right? If when you're performing, how do you then migrate into another life, especially if CTE plays into it also? I don't know. I just feel like there's no good, like, thank you for your years of service on entertaining the rest of us and playing. This is your life now. Good good luck, right? Like where is the, where is the welcome bag to part two?
4: Yeah, no, and I, I think, you know, so much of this book, Tracy Flick can win, is about getting older in a really competitive society. You know, I mean, Tracy is a competitor and and this book is about her, you know, finding a way to compete again in, in her 40s. But I, I do think there's also a critique underneath it of, of a society that is all, all about winning and is, a, is also about youth and promise and not so much about, um, you know, finding ways to age gracefully or finding ways to make peace with the fact that you're no longer competing. and and so I think you know all these issues are, are related somehow and they're they're part of um, you know, the the culture that we're in, which I think does make it it's hard enough, you know, to get older and to feel you know that you're losing some of your physical abilities. but you know the, the culture also sort of says, well, you know, we're not even noticing you anymore.
3: Yeah, sort of like the rise and fall of Front Desk Diane's hopes. <laughs> 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 so I love her, by the way. So you have Front Desk Diane who has this unrequited, well, I guess requited for a time, love, and keeps hoping for the principal to be able to officially leave. It. Well, it was, you know, <laughs> you introduced this terrible illness, so of course she can't. She can't wish anything ill upon his wife, but of course she's longing for him all along the way and just waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's like, anyway, it's a little yes, bit heart- heartbreaking.
4: <laughs> yes, well, so that's that's another story in in this book. Uh, so it's it's told Tracy Flickham, when is told as a kind of ensemble story set around this high school, and and one of the characters, as you say, is front desk Diane. She's the person who greets you when you come to the main office, and she's. Everybody loves her in town. She's kind of a local celebrity because she's been doing the job forever and um, she knows everyone and they and she's always friendly and, and helpful. But she has a secret, which is that she has been, uh, once ha- had a, a long-term affair with the, her principal, uh, who's the guy who's about to retire. And, you know, this is another case of somebody who, is having to grapple with a huge disappointment in in her life that she couldn't be with the man she loved and and has to work beside him and also feel guilty about the fact that she had an affair with him, you know, rather than a sort of relationship on on the up and up. And, and, you know, I think that that came, you know, partly I, I wrote the novel Election when I was younger, and I sort of poked fun at the people in the front office, the way you do when you're young and you are maybe not seeing the world with, you know, the eyes of somebody older and a little more compassionate. And and I just feel like I, I don't want to make a joke out of the school secretary. You know, I want to see the school secretary as a full human being. And and uh, that kind of guided me into that story. And she is a, a figure, I think, who I also had like enormous tenderness for because it's, uh, you know, she she's, People see her and know her or they think they do, but they don't really see her and know her. And I think that's part of what fiction does. It gives us an opportunity to see people who and kind of imagine their lives, people who we might just walk right past in the world. That just seems like a really important thing that fiction does.
3: You had this this sort of sad moment of her hiding out from the whole community in the grocery store late at night, like finding the off time. So she's not accosted at the store, but you never know. I mean, you could easily, it could have easily come from, you know, my going to the grocery today and seeing somebody and wondering, oh, I wonder what her story is. And then little do you know, she's like the linchpin of the whole community where she works. So I don't know. You just don't know. This Obviously, this sounds ridiculous, but there's so much you don't know when people make all these snap judgments about people that they pass throughout the course of the day. And whether it's their profession or their longing or their love or all the things they've gone through or their addiction or whatever. Anyway, I think that's one of the greatest things that novels do is remind people to stop doing that. Like that there's a whole story inside of everybody.
4: Yeah. You know, when, when I was a teacher, one of the things I would say is just, um, Write a story about the person who lives next door to you, mm-hmm. because that was something I, I realized at a certain point in my life. Every time I lived next to somebody, it turned out they had some amazing story. Yes, <laughs> and, and at first you're like, "Oh, what a coincidence! My neighbor has an amazing story." Well, now it turns out everybody has an amazing story, and and you just you know have to have the patience and the empathy to kind of listen to it, or or you know, in some cases, as a fiction writer, to imagine it. But I, I do you know take that to heart as a writer that especially, you know, I don't write about, for the most part, about adventurers or, or you know, people who are super powerful or, or wealthy. You know, I try to write about ordinary people and see their lives in a kind of full way.
3: When I was younger and I would get seated next to somebody at a dinner party or something like that. And I would have a bad conversation and I would think to myself like, oh, okay, well, I got seated next to somebody so dull or so boring or whatever. And now that I'm this age and maybe because I have conversations for a living somehow, I'm like, if I find that my conversation's boring, then I haven't done my job. Like that's my fault, right? Then I haven't figured out the person, like what is that person's story? Then Because it's always interesting. There's always something, right?
4: So- Yes, though. Not
3: that there aren't- (laughs) I mean,
4: there great. are boring people in the world, and I think they they might have they might have interesting stories. But I do think I, I have been <laughs> at dinner parties and have tried, yes. <laughs> and and sometimes you 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 can't get past the the surface of uh, you know people are actively repelling you. Maybe because they don't want to tell you yes. their story, or they don't understand really what's interesting about them. I think that's possible sometimes. But I, I agree that that. If you could somehow get people to, to open up and tell you their story, that there is something there that, that's fascinating, but they don't always know what it is. And I might not know what my story is. Uh, you know, I think.
3: Tom, Tom what um, is your story? Tell, what tell is me. My what story? makes you interesting? Tell me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, see, that's, that will be. I, I think sometimes a fiction writer, uh, you know, I think. So I grew up in a very working class community, my parents didn't go to college. and it's been very important for me to try and write books that are accessible to a lot of different people. Like I don't believe in a literary culture that only belongs to you know, highly educated people. But I will also say, you know, my parents were much more culturally conservative than I was. And so I got used to kind of you know hiding aspects of myself from them not that there was anything particularly scandalous it was just generational and and i think that fiction writing appealed to me because they're just these layers of masks um, that you can so i could say to my parents well that's not me that's you know that's a character i i wrote and so i do think there is some and that's part of what is i think why fiction exists right is that you know we can tell certain kinds of truths more easily if there's a, a, a layer of, of distance or, you know, plausible deniability. So for me, at least, I think I, I've I never found a way to write a memoir or write honestly about myself. I think that, that this habit of sort of keeping my privacy has encouraged me to be a fiction writer. And, and I can range really widely as a fiction writer. I'm not one of those fiction writers who you know, sticks really close to his own experience. But I do think there is some element that that comes from growing up of of like not not being fully open and that that fiction is the only, I need that device to kind of tell my truths.
3: Interesting. See, who knew?
4: Who knew? (laughs) Not me.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you so much Tom for coming on. Thanks for reintroducing Tracy Flick, but mostly, I mean not to disparage her in any way, but I just lo- loved all the other characters and how many characters there were and how you just kept bouncing us from play- person to person and giving us so many different vantage points to keep it really interesting and and also of course continuing this fabulous character so. Anyway, it was really fun chatting and I look forward to hearing if you're dinner party conversations are now spiced up. You can think of me. Uh,
4: Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure.
3: My pleasure. Congratulations. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.